Kia ora koutou. welcome to HR Chats with me, Tereda. This is a series of chats about HR, where we talk to people around the burning issues of the day in the HR sector, interesting trends and ideas, uh, and we have a, a diverse range of people lined up as well to chat with. And as we mentioned at the start of these, if there is a topic or a person you think we should talk to, feel free to reach out and let us know and we'll try to arrange that. Today, we are talking with Amy Clark. Amy is currently working as a business partner in the people and culture team at Stats NZ. She was, you may have seen the profile a little while ago, a profile in HRNZ or for HRNZ, talking about the importance of empathy in HR and her journey from being adopted as a baby in Romania to an HR professional based here in Wellington, New Zealand. She has a passion for respect and inclusion, is particularly interested in intersectionality, allyship, and the importance of using privilege to create safe spaces for those that need them both inside and outside the workplace. What a pertinent topic. Hello, Amy. <laughs> I'm very good and very much looking forward to this conversation. I'm going to start with uh, a word that people may struggle to kind of understand. It's very much in the dialogue uh, and the dialect at the moment. Intersectionality. Sure. What does that mean? Um, so I guess to me, intersectionality is kind of the, the crossover of different areas where disadvantage is particularly pertinent or um, evident. So often we see things like intersectionality when we talk about pay equity. So um, we know that generally uh, women are paid lower than their male counterparts. And when we put some sort of ethnic lens, for example, over that, uh, if you are a member of an ethnic minority, then you are um, more often than not paid less than your Eurocentric counterparts if you're in a, um, say, if you're um, Māori or if you are Pacifica or Asian. So that, that's kind of a, yeah, an, an example of intersectionality would be gender and ethnicity overlapping to create a disadvantage. So I guess people could sort of picture that as a Venn diagram or some one of those kind of graphs. As you as you sort of apply more filters onto something, you can just see that those stats change as they go through all of this. I guess Stats New Zealand is probably a really good place to to mine all of this data to keep searching through and refining things down. Do you get access to much? of that? Does it change the way that you think about things? Um, look, I think that it's best for everybody that they keep me well away from the statistics here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Did that um, give you little PDFs of things and go, you might find this interesting? Yeah, look, there's, there's lots of information here. I think that that's, it's, a, um, it's a really awesome place to work. And I think that um, Stats and Z are doing some really cool stuff with leading the way um, with lots of things across the data system. And I'm really lucky that I've got um, a some wonderful people around me who are the analytical experts who I lean on. Um, my friends and family and um, colleagues and peers will know that uh, maths is not my strong suit per se, but <laughs> but HR is. So that's why I work yeah. in the HR profession and uh, not as a statistician here. Allyship. Where should we start? Allyship? What? what, what? When we're, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion as we are today, what is a good starting point where you talk to people about it? Where do you begin? So I think that, um, you know, allyship for me is, uh, is a really key part of that whole kind of um, sphere of privilege, I think, in understanding that. And I think that, you know, um, typically a lot of places have, uh, if I use an example of kind of executive sponsorship as a... Um, uh, yeah, as an example, um, the the trend of, or not, it's not a trend, the, the act of having an executive there that supports um, 
uh, a piece of work or a minority group that might not have had that uh, that voice or that um, sphere of influence internally is really important. I think for me now that uh, that uh, you know executive sponsorship in um, DNI related things is kind of uh, we've matured. I think as as lots of different organisations as a country, I think we've come a long way with finding a place for that internally in the workplace, and I think that. Now that we're kind of at that stage, it's wonderful to open up the conversation about, you know, allyship versus sponsorship. And that, for me, allyship is not only giving a minority group a voice, but um, bringing them to the table and then stepping back as that sponsor or that ally and allowing uh, the minority voices to be heard. I think that's kind of, um, yeah, that's a uh, that's kind of how I see it. So I think allyship is... Um, is where you let the, the group that you are trying to support or be an ally for um, give you how they would like your support to be utilised, I suppose. So sometimes it's really important for groups to, um, to allow their sponsors or their allies to speak for them, if, if for whatever reason, you know, it's a too, it's too yeah. complex an issue. It's been a hard road. Um, but I think from my experience, most importantly, is, is allowing people to speak for themselves. And likewise, allowing people to speak also means that people should very consciously be listening. Listening's a hard thing for people. It is. It is. Yep. It's a skill. What would be, if you could give anyone any advice on, on the notion of listening, because people think they listen, is there any advice you could suggest for active listening, yeah. for, for really engaging? I think that um, for for me, the key to active listening is um, to leave all of your assumptions at the door, and that's something that's really important when we talk about, um, uh, you know, inclusion at any stage or in any space. It's that uh, in order to, you know, in order to be a really good ally, in order to be a really wonderful support, um, the act of listening is so important. And dropping your assumptions and um, yeah, letting people tell you. Uh, who they are and and how they want to work with you or how they want to operate in a space. Um, yeah, if you um, if you do that, I think that you you quickly find a far more meaningful way to support uh, lots of different groups, not only minority groups but other groups as well. Yeah, there was a word you mentioned, and it has been very much um, at the forefront of conversation. Um, and I know I've reassessed my life based upon this word, and, the, and that is the word privilege. A lot of people, particularly when you, you mention, say, for example, white privilege, uh, people react, you know, they don't like to be called on that. But, you know, that's, it's a pretty important kind of conversation to have, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, I think that um, privilege is something that I have, uh, look, I think we're all unlearning behaviours when it comes to privilege, right? And I think that's a really wonderful and powerful thing for us to be doing. I think that uh, privilege, uh, I observe it a lot in an HR space. So, you know, as HR professionals, we work in areas where we have a lot of influence and we have a lot of reach. And I think that that's something that um, it's easy to forget because in HR, that's something that we've always kind of had, right? Like often, HR has a seat at the table or the plan for HR is to have a seat at the table. And I think that the, the act of acknowledging that as HR professionals is something that um, will be a massive, massive help in, you know, not only supporting diversity and promoting inclusion, but um, in, I think in general, it, it's a, um, 
it's a really powerful thing. You know, I, I've sat around the table with other groups that, um, you know, community groups in the, the Rainbow community, for example, that, that I'm a part of. And listening to people talk and hearing the stories about, you know, how they try and um, uh, support and push movements inside their own organisations, uh, a lot of people aren't part of an HR team. And so their first step is that they've got to get that, uh, that engagement, that buy-in from their HR team. And then from there, they've got to kind of foster that relationship to, to put in the next steps of whatever it is that they're, they're trying to kind of lead or support. And, yeah. um, you know, if we already sit at that HR table, that's one less step. And, you know, we, we have the keys to, we have those influence keys there. So I think it's really important that we, um, yeah, we're aware of that. And we, um, uh, we use our powerful good, I suppose. Yeah. If you could, for people who, who who may have heard of privilege, you know, is there a way of summing up the the many iterations of what privilege kind of entails? Because it's is is it a sort of a good gateway into understanding where we're going with the rest of this conversation? Yeah, I I think so. I think so. And you know, privilege is a um, it's a really complicated thing. And I'm very aware that um, as as a white person myself, that I have to acknowledge and be aware of my own privilege anytime I kind of walk into a space. I think that um, that's kind of a, a yeah, a, a really important thing to be aware of. And I think that if I think about, um, you know, my own privileges is, uh, you know, an, an openly out gay cis woman in New Zealand, that I you know, my privilege is that I can walk down the street with my wife. If we're not holding hands, then we become invisible and that is a privilege in and of itself a lot of people um in the rainbow community uh they can't do that they don't they don't have the luxury of being able to do that and so i think that <clears throat> yeah it's a it's a very you know multifaceted thing and i think then if we go you know i, I carry a lot of privilege with me when i kind of walk through the world and um somebody who has many of my kind of you know traits attributes um that is maybe or that identifies as heterosexual rather than as gay that's another layer of privilege that they have and if i was um uh you know a, a part of a, a visible ethnic minority that that would be another layer of privilege so yeah it's a it's a it's a very complicated thing and i think that the the key thing for me is we don't have to get this you know nobody's expecting us to get this perfect we know that um it is really complex but i think that acknowledging and being open to learning when it comes to our privilege and how our privilege impacts other people is is the key you have probably i guess i have it certainly the privilege of, of bringing our whole selves to work a lot of people don't have that can you can you talk about the notion of what it means to bring your whole self to work or, or, or to have a workspace that allows people to bring their whole selves to work yeah sure I think that um, you know for me that question is quite a complex one I think that uh, if I said to you what what does bringing your whole self to work mean like you know if I asked you that question what what would some of the things be that you would go that's that's a part of that that's a very good question. Uh, well, gosh, um, I, I guess bringing, what, what does that mean? You know, like I thought I knew what it meant. And now that you've put me on the spot, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, <laughs> does it mean that I can bring my 
background. I can talk about my family. I can talk about what I do when I go on a holiday um, without feeling that I need to moderate that. I can talk about my hobbies and my social practices. I could talk about my agnostic atheism uh, without a worry that people, there would be a, a, a censure of my religious and social beliefs. Um, I could talk about the TV programs I like watching, I suppose. You know what I mean? Without, without yeah. any fear that anyone would, would judge me or, or, or pass me over or, or, or move me out or on. So I think that's a, um, this is a, maybe a really good example, right? Because th th those things are all correct and there's no, there's no right or wrong answer to what it means to bring your whole self to work. What it means for me is that I can come to work and I can use the correct pronouns for my partner, um, my wife. I can, um, I can walk into a room and um, be confident or feel safe talking about who my partner is and what my background is and I think that that's um that when, when I think about bringing my whole self to work that that's the first thing that comes to mind and I think that um my my wife and I've been together for 11 and a half years we got married in January and the journey that we have had throughout the length of our relationship in different workplaces has been really really different so I would say that I am more myself at this job than I have been at any job previously. And it's, you know, a lot of it is that internal growth thing, but a lot of it is um, how, how visible representation is in other organizations or places of work that um, the little things like that give you these invisible signals as a, you know, as a, as an openly queer person, as a, a minority that, um, tell you that it's okay to be who you are or you know you're not walking into an environment that is unsafe or or dangerous and I know that seems kind of um you know it sounds like kind of an extreme thing to say but but you know uh I think that um I've had more experiences than I can count where I'm walking along the street or we're walking home at night and we just uh, we we pass a group of people and we decide that it's safer for us to not hold hands in that current moment and so we do and that allows us to kind of move through that space in a way where we feel less threatened um, but that is uh, that is you know those things the um, examples of that they are not um, they're not you know years and years in the past mm. they happen on a weekly basis Oh, they're happening so, today, you know. Yeah, yeah totally. I, many friends, you know, if, even even yesterday I was having a conversation around a, a similar kind of thing, and you think, gosh, you've, you always think we've moved on, but again, that's that privilege of being within certain bubbles, isn't it? If you're in a bubble where where people are more liberal, there's lots of of um, queer friends, friends of different ethnicities, you could almost think that things were getting a lot better on the whole. So tell me, how can HR ensure that their culture and their workplaces is acceptable or if if there are issues move on from one place to a better place i think that um you know the first thing to note in this space is that change doesn't have to be massive it can be really you know a little baby steps it's i think that the um sometimes opening the door to uh, to DNI or being open to it in an organisation can seem super overwhelming because there are so many factors, right? So I think that the the first thing that um, that I would that I would say to you know anybody that's looking to shift their culture to a more 
inclusive space is that you don't have to get it perfect to begin with and you don't have to do everything at once. Start with little things that you think will have the, the, um, the uh, you know, a good impact, but not necessarily a massive impact. Like uh, we, um, it's, it's probably for about a year now, have had um, pronouns in our email signatures, which is, um, you know, that's free. That doesn't cost us anything. It's a, a really amazing way to make sure that we aren't putting the burden on um, our, you know, gender diverse or our, our non-binary or trans staff to have to be the only ones that do that to be, you know, properly identified um, as, as who they are. So, you know, little things like that, I think, um, yeah, look for the low-hanging fruit. That's definitely a great place to start, um, I think. I just want to... I say something here because this isn't a really important thing, isn't it? And it, and it's where the burden of responsibility falls with diversity and inclusion. And there can be a tendency for for people to expect or or, or want the work to be done by the group that needs to be looked after, if you know what I mean. Yep. Where actually it's, it's, it's behoven to the people who are in those positions to actually do the work. I guess an example of this, you'll see it on social media where someone calls something out and says, look, actually that's, that's not right. And they go, well, go and explain it to me and find some links and, and show me. It's like, it's not up to me to do all of this extra work and take on this burden. It's up to you to, to, to do that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Making that responsibility the, yeah. Absolutely, yep. absolutely. And I think that, you know, on that note, the, um, the, the most important part for me in that is that um, the, the burden absolutely needs to be shared and, and people that are asking for the support of, um, you know, experts in these areas, people that have this lived experience and knowledge and um, understanding because they're part of these minority groups, they can't, they can't be expected to do all the work, but they must be included and given the option to lead it because that's where you get that richness, right? That's where yeah. you get um, the, that's how you bring people to the table. So I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a funny thing because we have to, you know, we in HR have to recognize that, um, that people are experts in their own rights, but that we can't always expect them to lead. And there'll be some times where yeah. people will, you know, they'll have the energy to want to do that and sometimes they won't. And so it's a, you know, it's about consistently checking in with people that you do yeah. engage to support these processes to make sure yeah. that they have the yeah. energy. And we spoke, yeah, we, we spoke to Carly about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, in terms of uh, inclusion of Māori in the workplace that don't, don't, because you have Māori, don't, don't expect them to have to do all of the work. Don't put that extra work upon them. But if you are wanting people to do that, then to make that a part of their position, to allow them the time, to reward them, to make that a, a part of the, of the thing they do at, at work. While we're here, let's, let's talk about the notion of diversity. Because some people may think that it's a relatively sort of, it's, it's, it's gender, sexuality, ethnicity. But it's actually a lot wider than that, isn't it? It is, it is. And I think that it's, um, you know, it's, it's a really massive thing that impacts every part of our lives, whether, you know, you realise it or not. I think one of the, um, uh, one of the things that... Um, my partner often says to me um, is that people think that something you know isn't designed 
um, everything is designed, whether it's good design or bad design, somebody has designed that. So it's this thing, you know, this thing that people don't necessarily think um, exists in every, you know, tangible object. I think that diversity is, is really similar to that, that um, it's everywhere and there are so many different facets of it and that the there's so much value, there's so much richness in it that to, to not want to tap into it and to, um, you know, open the doors of our workplace and, you know, hearts and minds to it, I think. Um, it benefits everybody. It doesn't just benefit the minority groups that you're wanting to support. Yeah, because when we're, we're talking about, you know, we're talking around, you know, diversity of backgrounds, um, urban versus rural we're talking diversity of intellect you know uh, it's good to have people at the table who may have had you know have a phd in something and but but someone from from the work from the factory floor you know uh, there's all of those levels as well uh, are there other other little ones that people may not be aware of that they should have a little think about when they're looking to put teams together when they're looking to promote or to recruit oh that's a really good question i think that the you know, the only comment that I would make on that is that um, diversity of thought is something that uh, we, you know, we are about. I think that it's it's sometimes a useful notion to challenge a little bit because my experience, and this is this is just my experience, but my experience is that if um, if you have if you have good diversity diversity of thought comes naturally and if you are looking for diversity of thought generally it means that um that there isn't uh, a good representation of diversity at a table for example or on an exec team or whatever like it's that's not a that's not a specific example about anywhere yeah. or anyone in particular but it's just a um it's a it's an interesting concept i think to kind of to challenge when we do hear it yeah, and, and look, there is a real sort of belief that a lot of that diversity and inclusion needs to start at the executive level, you know, and you'll often see those photographs of boards or things like that, and, you know, <laughs> uh, they all look like the same guy. <laughs> they do, they do. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, um, there's a reason for that. It's, uh, you know, it's historic and systemic, and that is, I think, where we all, not only HR professionals, but all of us have a role to yeah. play in helping to kind of crack that. And I think, you know, we often hear that expression, um, uh, somebody should be appointed on their individual merits. And I, I couldn't agree more with that. The only thing that I would challenge um, in addition to that is that often that pipeline of talent um, looks a certain way because of these systemic historic things that are happening in the background. That's exactly right. You get your merits in many ways through the privileges of the of the the mechanism that has put you through into these places that other people have had that for whatever reason um, have had exactly. that denied to them, which doesn't mean that they're not as competent or capable. It's just that they haven't had that particular channel. Hey, um, in terms of things that people should think about, you know, that, that were unconscious bias. And, and, there's, and I'm sure there's trainings around this. So let's talk about unconscious bias, for example, and ways that people can acknowledge and then perhaps move move through that. Yeah. So look, I think that um, the the first thing that I always like to note with with bias is that we all have it. So it's not it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. And the power in using that um, in a positive way is is recognizing that it's there, and then recognizing um, what it looks like in yourself as an individual, and then how you can challenge that as you kind of move through different spaces and. Um, 
I think that uh, there are lots of um, there are, there are lots of really awesome free resources that you can get online that um, that help you kind of test your own unconscious bias or your conscious bias. Um, so yeah, I, I would yeah. say, and, and that can be quite that can be that can be quite challenging for people, you know, yeah, to do a test like that and to realise that actually you think I'm not I'm not the kind of good person that I thought I was. Yeah, Can and you I explain to people like around it, unconscious bias. Just explain what it is for people so who don't know. I'm sure bias, people do, but you know, just in case, it is a, a bias towards a certain outcome or um, decision or person based on basically your your cumulative life experiences. So um, there are lots of great little pictures. It's probably not the neatest example, and maybe I could find something and add it in. But but it's basically um, it's this kind of concept of fast thinking, slow thinking that happens in your brain in the background while you are assessing a situation. That fast thinking is the um, is the stuff that's not necessarily rooted in fact or um, in um, tangibility, but based on things that you've seen, done, heard in the past that presents um, an opinion or a bias that might not necessarily be true. Right. I'm going to give an example of it. I, I, I may be wrong. For example, you see two people talking in the workplace. Uh, you see for, uh, a white man and uh, a woman of colour. And would your unconscious bias would automatically then perhaps assume if they're dressed the same, the man is the boss. Oh, he must be the boss. And then actually he's not the boss. It turns out that he is the subordinate. That would be an example of unconscious bias where you, 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 don't, think, you, you don't think that you're going to be a little bit sort of... Uh, gender and racial biased but in that fleeting moment that you make that assumption that's unconscious bias it is right? and and it is yep that's that's a that's a great example and another one would be you know if i said without without giving you a gender or an ethnicity um have the picture of a doctor in your head or somebody who works in the police force or somebody who was a nurse when i say those things is there a picture that's coming up unbidden perhaps that um that when you stop and think about them, you go, well, no, I, you know, uh, I shouldn't yeah. have used that. Uh, or, you know, the doctor is a man in my head or that the nurse is a woman, for example. That, that's, a, that's another kind of example of it. It is, and we see a lot of conversation around that, particularly with encouraging um, uh, young women into STEM and various other things, that assumption that, you know, draw a scientist and it's generally a man in a white coat. Um, yeah. <laughs> diversity, and, diversity and inclusion training you know you've mentioned that there is there are lots of free courses online but if you want to put some of your people yourself through a course are there any that you recommend or you know any particular tangent that people take do you do you put small groups through is it good to put everybody through do you encounter sometimes resistance to people to go i don't i don't need this i'm okay yeah, I see look, that as a kind uh, of in a manly, in a white manly kind of way. I don't know if you noticed the unconscious bias of em, me. Embrace unconsciously. The stereotype. Em, yeah, thank yeah. you. I was. I was bringing it along. Yeah. No. It was. It was, um, it was perfect. Perfect. Um, look, I think the, you know, the training question is kind of a hard one. I think that often people look for a silver bullet for DNI, and um, there isn't one. Um, I think that you know, in my experience, engaging community groups is a really awesome way to to support them and to get a really realistic and kind of grassroots view of the world and learnings and things so um one of the groups that uh we have engaged here at stats and that i um have seen do a lot of really amazing work at inside out who are based in um in wellington and they 
they have come and run some workshops for us, which have been really wonderful about understanding gender and sexuality. And, um, ha you know, having people that run these courses that are um, not only brilliant and patient and kind teachers, but are, um, you know, representative of the groups that they're, they're talking about and they're teaching people about is, is so important and um, I think makes a, a much richer experience. So, yeah, look, look training is a, it's a hard one. There are, there are so many different places where you can seek that support from. But for workplaces, I would say look internally first, you know, put the feelers out to, um, to your people because they, they understand the unique challenges and um, opportunities that every workplace has in terms of, you know, its culture and how it does or doesn't support um, different aspects of diversity. Hmm. Look, we talk about low-hanging fruit, and I was just thinking, I, I googled diversity and inclusion HR uh, in my extensive research, and then, as many people do, <laughs> which is that first little list of things where you can click the little bar and a, a list of sort of topics comes up. One of the things that came up, and in, 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 in many of the things, was something as simple as acknowledging everybody's cultural holidays. You know, it's small. We're talking the, so those little things as well. You've got all of the kind of high-end training, but then something as simple as a as an event, a day. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's a, you know, that's a really interesting and, and key point. Um, and it's one of those things that I think when we look at it can be a little bit confronting. But, um, you know, in New Zealand, uh, we have quite a Eurocentric view on um, employment law, certainly, but on lots of other aspects. So um, things like, I think, uh, performance is quite Eurocentric as well. And I think that acknowledging different things or um, impacts or um, aspects of somebody's culture or ethnicity that might mean that they move and experience a workplace differently and that they need different things, different kinds of flexibility. I think that um, being aware of and acknowledging that is a really powerful and yeah, it's a low hanging fruit, right? Because I think that to, um, to search out that information or to try and understand um, it's, uh, it doesn't have to be an enormous um, and perfect undertaking. You just have to, yeah. you know, humbly ask for the assistance of the people that it is you're trying to support. Yeah. Uh, and then just, I guess, you know, being aware of all those other very small differences, you know, that the notion of, of a firm handshake, eye contact, um, being able to promote yourself. It's a very sort of patriarchal white scenario. And often, you know, we've had so many examples through HR and, and, and through life as well of, of, the, the the issues with misunderstanding the notion of those simple gestures. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, we often forget that gender is a power imbalance in and of itself. So, you know, it's one of those things that, um, that we uh, not take for granted, that's maybe the wrong way of putting it, but it's definitely a factor in things that we forget sometimes. And I think that, you know, um, the, the key to, to things like this uh, or wanting to understand what you know how uh, how you can support um, and not assume is you know it comes back to that listening thing the the leaving your assumptions and um, yeah. your bias or or checking your bias at the door not leaving it at the door because it's always with you but yeah checking it at the door I think that that's um, you know all of that stuff's free to do isn't it and and I think that that's uh, such a good step in the right direction. There's also, you know, other things that people may forget around when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Um, multi-generational workforces. 
you know, there can be an implicit bias toward either way, actually, towards older, more experienced workers that kind of that they're better, uh, uh, you know, or the kind of we've heard all of the kind of tired old cliches around Gen X and Gen Y and their desire to move through. That's an important notion as well as, as everything else. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think that's where being aware of bias is so important because sometimes it's just taking a step back and going, uh, how do we make sure that we're valuing everybody on their own individual merits rather than, um, you know, using a stereotype and benchmarking everybody against that? Yeah. Safety signals for groups you know people often talk about it's important to have safety signals or, or safe spaces and safe spaces is, is one of those terms that's very easy for a certain group of the populace to deride but they're an incredibly important thing a misunderstood thing yeah i think um i think they are uh they're incredibly important and and potentially misunderstood and i think that um you know for me uh and that they are um when when, you know, as a member of a minority group, when I talk about safety signals, they can be the smallest, tiniest thing. So I have a, a little rainbow badge that sits on my lanyard at work. And, um, and I wear that because I look for that myself when I move through different spaces. And, you know, when I walk up and down the street in Wellington, if I see somebody with a rainbow lanyard, then that just makes me go, oh, okay, you know, that that is a safety signal for me. So I think that there's a there's a real power in them, but you know, with that power, I think comes <laughs> to quote Spider-Man responsibility because I think it's really key that we are aware of um, of the fact that those signals are very real and that they send um, really important messages to people who who need them and who are looking for them. So things like you know writing in a job ad that um, a workplace is is safe and inclusive is is really important, and that's the that's the place that we want everybody to be at, right? But I think that, you know, really ensuring that you have um, you have mechanisms and a culture in place that actually supports that because people will look for that and they will, um, they will, they may base, you know, applying for a job or not on seeing something like that in a job ad. And so I think it's, it's really important for all organisations to understand that, um, that, uh, the tiniest thing can be really important and crucial to um, to to somebody, uh, you know, in lots of different minority groups coming into a workplace. Likewise, the the allowance of those flippant and, and offhand comments that can then be justified as you know, it's just a joke. It's just it's it, it's that little phrase that, and, and we've we've all I'm sure we've all done it where we've heard someone say something that we think, but we. We've thought it, but we haven't actually said, no, mate, no, you, that, that's, that's not acceptable. But that, that's an important thing to do, isn't it? Because A, to signal that it's not acceptable, and sometimes B, actually just to remind the person that what you said, you may think that's funny or, or an offhand remark, but it can be very, very hurtful and, and quite detrimental to people. We need to call yeah, people definitely. out. Yeah, we do, we do. And I think that, you know, that's a... Um, it's all part of this unlearning old behaviours, right? Because we've all done it. It's it's um, it's something that you know it sucks, but we we can only be better. We can only strive to be better in the things that we do and we say. And I think that yeah. the, and, uh, the bystander effect is a really interesting thing. And you know, sometimes it's it's hard to call people out in the moment. And so it doesn't always have to be 
um, you know, mid conversation, if it's easier to have a quiet chat to somebody afterwards or send an email if you're not somebody who who um, who loves, you know, face to face yeah. or, or a confrontation, that's that's totally yeah. fine as well. It also reinforces a power imbalance because often the person who is going to do the calling out it, it, it is not in a position to do that. I mean, I've I've been in that position where someone's been saying something that I think is reprehensible, but I'm an employee. Is it is it up to me to call them out, or you're a, you're a subordinate? And and then what happens is you become the problem. You're you're the problematic one. You're and we've heard it. You know, you're the mouthy one. You know, always calling people out. So having structures within that workplace and then making sure that those structures are very clearly promoted and very safe because, you know, again, you've had people go to someone say, Hey, look, a situation has occurred. And then they ring up the person who's caused the situation and immediately, you know, who the person was that's complained about it. Oh, it was, it was her generally, you know, she did it, you know, Uh, how do people sort that out? How do they, is it just making sure that their protocols are correct? Is it having an external company? something that, that, that people can go to? It's, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's about having, you know, an external kind of um, uh, person or, or someone to go to, but I think it's about really looking internally and, you know, being quite critical, I think, of um, what that pathway looks like for people. So, you know, putting yourself, you know, it, it, as an HR practitioner, putting yourself in, in somebody's shoes that might need to, to raise their hand or say something uh, how can we make it as easy and as safe for them to do so? Great. We are just about out of time. Anything else you want to add? Any anything? Any sort of examples of best and worst practice that you've seen in diversity and inclusion? <sighs> Look, uh, you know, I'm not someone who likes to focus on the negatives. I think that I'd just say when when it comes to doing really well, um, the the areas that I've seen this done well are. Um, are led by people who are experts or are members of a minority, but they are supported um, by people who use their privilege for good. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, look, we, yeah, like I've said, low-hanging fruit is so important. Don't assume, wait, and, um, and let people tell you about themselves because, you know, ultimately, uh, even us uh, card-carrying introverts like to be able to talk about ourselves and who we are. And I think that um, there are, we unlock so much value in people when we do that. Marvelous, and really, you know, if anything, it's we can we can all we can all be better people, you know, and just begin by, you know, if if you are listening to this, I imagine just go online and find one of those little tests, see if you've got Absolutely. those unconscious biases, and, and as I say, certainly, you know, I I remember when a couple of years ago I first heard that phrase, checking your privilege, you know, and white privilege, and and you kind of think, oh, wait, wait. once you become aware of all of these little things, it becomes something that's just there in the back of your mind every time you go into a situation. Um, so, you know, self-improvement, relentless self-improvement, Amy. Yeah, yeah, with kindness, right? I think that's the key thing. Yeah. Like, you know, so much of what I do, I try and bring back to that. I think that if we... If we engage meaningfully and really in kind the forefront, we can do so much good stuff together. Absolutely. Um, you know, kindness and empathy. Um, can empathy, you know, you've spoken before around empathy. Can empathy be be taught? Is it can it be a learned thing? Can people be aware of their non-empathetic no, uh, nature? I think it's definitely something that comes more naturally to some people than others, but I don't think it's something that can't be learned. I think it just comes from, uh, yeah, unpacking some of your... Um, your own ways of thinking, unlearning some behaviours, and I think that there are, you know, if 
if you are someone who identifies themselves as or thinks that they are not an empathetic person, I'm sure that uh, you will know somebody who is. So it's it's. Um, if I had someone come to me and say, how do I be more empathetic? I'd go, how much time do you have? So I think it's something that we would love to. <laughs> it's, it's a piece of knowledge that we'd happily share. Marvellous. Amy Clark, what a, a wonderful um, conversation. We could talk for ages, but we don't have time. We could. Um, we could. You've got to go back to work. The listeners have got lives to live. I've got to go and <laughs> stand around outside uh, for a period of time and breathe some fresh air. Amy, Thank you, Amy Clark, uh, business partner and people and culture, uh, the team at Stats NZ. You've been listening to HR Chats with me, Tereda, for HR NZ. If there is anybody, as we mentioned at the start, that you think we should talk to, if there are any subjects that you would like to have uh, a discussion on, please let us know. Contact details on the website. Thank you for listening. If you haven't listened to the other podcasts, now is an excellent time to do that, and we'll chat again soon.